All right, hi, this is Jonah Thompson with the Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast again. And today I have with me Dr. Victoria Reinhartz, who is a pharmacist. And we got chatting a few weeks ago uh, via LinkedIn. And some of the stuff she's doing just really struck me as this is amazing because I've been lucky enough to have a pharmacist on my program for the last couple of years. And the work that she's done for us has been phenomenal. And when I started talking to uh, the good doctor here, I realized, wow, there are more of her. So we've had a couple of great conversations since then, and I figured it was a good time to get her on the call. So Dr. Doctor, how are you doing? Hi, good, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to um, jump on and, and talk to you about a, a lot of the exciting things that I've, I've learned about within Mobile Integrated Health. Good deal. So that's probably the first question is, how in the world did you get involved with the likes of us? Like, how did you hear about community paramedicine or Mobile Integrated Health? And how did you first kind of get partnered up with them? Yeah, so it's an interesting story for sure, and it's certainly not common, you know, uh, probably in the world of, of community paramedicine, uh, you, Jonah, and your team have uh, more exposure to the role of a pharmacist than most EMS teams, so it's definitely not common. Um, so by trade, I'll just introduce my background a little bit. So by trade, I'm a consultant pharmacist in the state of Florida, and I am faculty within the School of Pharmacy down at LECOM, L-E-C-O-M, in, in Bradenton, Florida area. And so I'm full-time faculty, but I'm what we consider practice faculty. So a few days a week, I can pick a location in the community where I want to practice as a pharmacist. And so I started my practice location as a faculty member within the Department of Health here local in Manatee County, Florida. And um, they had applied at that time for a grant through ACA. So this is back in 2015. And they were trying to establish through that grant a community paramedicine program. And, you know, the, the chief of EMS uh, at that time was, was looking for, you know, ways to maximize impact and through multiple discussions about, you know, how this would be established and, and how they were going to, you know, explore different ways to implement operations within the community paramedicine program. We kind of just started to realize that the medications and the chronic disease management pieces were huge and that it could be a mutually beneficial relationship to actually partner the pharmacist and the community paramedics um, to tackle some of the chronic disease knowledge base problems, to tackle the medication problems. And, you know, people thought at first that we were kind of crazy by exploring this, but that's how this all got started is we had an innovator um, within, our, within our EMS chief and our community paramedicine chief. Yeah, that's a pretty visionary uh, way of looking at some of these problems. And what year was that? That was 2015 when we were when we were initially grant funded, and then the actual um, you know operationally, we actually started seeing patients in 2016, and we took a couple months of establishing just paramedicine operations. And then probably after two or three months is when, um, as the pharmacist, we actually implemented, you know, what that would look like when the paramedic and the pharmacist visited patients together. That's great. So you're doing home visits as well. Yeah. So, um, so back in 2016, so I, I saw my first patient, I want to say October, 2016. And for a 
probably a little over two years, multiple days per week. I would actually ride with the paramedics and I saw every patient that had, you know, uh, criteria for referral to a pharmacist. So, you know, polypharmacy, multiple different conditions that were uncontrolled, et cetera. Um, and so we would actually go to the home together. Um, now we've grown uh, beyond beyond the scope. We've, we've needed a, a full-time pharmacist probably for a while. And so now it's just not feasible with our patient load for me to see everyone. And so we've had to implement, uh, you know, different models where I do remote consult and things. Um, but yeah, for several years, we rode together. And, and that still, in my opinion, is one of the most effective ways to identify and resolve issues. Sure, you know, we we never had the capacity to use our pharmacist full-time on the road. Um, so we never had our pharmacist full-time. That's actually one of the big pushes, I think, for me professionally as we continue to grow and develop our program. Um, so we've let, allowed it to be an option. And there are times where she has absolutely come out with the team when there was just no good way to really accomplish what needed to be accomplished, you know, by proxy through the, the CPs, you know, the CPs, I think, do a, a pretty phenomenal job of doing that in-depth inventory of really being able to dig into a lot of the outside, you know, it's not just writing down a list of meds, but really um, exploring the, the medication in terms of inventorying it and kind of some of the history around the patient's own understanding, you know, the pharmacies that are involved, what else is in the house that's not on the medical administration record or you know, mm -hmm. in their EHR. But, but there's a point where they still need the expertise of that pharmacist. And, and we've recognized that we just never were able to do it to the degree that I would like. Um, so we've left it as an option for the, the highest risk patients. And, you know, in between, we do a lot more of that, that other type of consulting. Yeah, no, I, I think that you're right. And I don't think it's always necessary, of course, to have the pharmacist. And I think that as you get more seasoned as a community paramedic, that your skill set and being able to proactively identify medication issues grows significantly, right? So a, a community paramedic that has been doing this for a little while is going to be much more effective than somebody that, you know, is walking into a patient's house for the in the first month or so of, of their um, of their experience and and be able to effectively identify, no, I probably need to like look on the nightstand and I need to um, find out what creams they're using or what eye drops they're using or other things that aren't in this pill box. Um, and so there, there is a lot of growth there, I think. And so not every patient is going to need a pharmacist actually in the home on the visit. Um, a lot of things can be effectively done through telehealth, okay? So with the pharmacist live via telehealth or even over the phone. So we still do a lot of by phone consults, you know, on a, on a weekend or something like that. If we have a patient that's hypoglycemic and the CP is with them, the CP can call me and say, well, you know, they're hypoglycemic right now, but the patient is supposed to take their insulin in three hours. Do I have them take it? Do I have them not take it? Um, you know, we're resolving the hypoglycemia, but what do we do with the medicines today for the rest of the day until, you know, we can get them into the physician tomorrow. Um, so there's situations where it, the pharmacist isn't always needed in the home, um, especially with our, our advanced CP programs that are heavily medically focused. Um, but there's a lot of situations where you do need that pharmacist and their expertise um, either live through telehealth on the phone or in person too. So it's interesting to find the balance there as well. 
Sure. And as, as you and I have talked about, you know, my program and most of the programs in our area are a little less focused on the immediate clinical needs and more on the uh, kind of the bigger picture, both the social determinants that are driving utilization, as well as really those barriers to self-management that are preventing people from doing as good a job as they would like at caring for themselves. And the pharmacist for us has really shown that there are a lot of opportunities to improve patients' medication, especially when, when you know, we're experiencing all the things that like, if you look at the AHRQ you know, risks, they all talk about you know, polypharmacy and complexity and aging and transitions of care. And just all of those things are the things that drive someone into an MIH program or turn them into a referral to our program. And when you see patients who are on a dozen, 15 or more medications, they're seeing a number of different clinicians, uh, they're pharmacy shopping for all the reasons that that happens. And every care transition, something changes, it just gets confusing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And I think that, you know, you're bringing up a lot of great points that the medication piece and the disease management pieces um, there is a ton that can be done to reduce that burden to the patient because a lot of these patients, you know, maybe they don't have the mental capacity to, to navigate uh, what they need to do. Uh, a lot of patients are dealing with, you know, uh, medical related traumas or uh, disease related traumas. They, they may feel depressed or have mental health issues that are at play here. Um, they a lot of times feel really defeated in being able to successfully manage their disease and manage all the medications. And, and all of it is super expensive and it's incredibly burdensome to their day to day, right? And so there are a lot of ways that, you know, my team utilizes me when we have a patient, just for example, take adherence, right? Medication adherence. And yes, my adherence over compliance. Thank you. Yes, adherence. Yes. So um, I agree with you that the change in terminology is really important. But um, but yes. So so medication adherence seems like seems like a really simple thing. Like, dude, just take your medicine, right? It's not that hard. But you have all of these other things that are at play here. And as the pharmacist you know, I spend a lot of time prioritizing what my patient's goals are and figuring out how I can change the medicines or, you know, help the physician uh, put together a plan for those medicines that the patient's going to be on board with, right? So maybe I change everything. Yeah, they have to buy in exactly, right? Um, but there's, you know, also the scientific side, right? So they they have to buy in, um, and we have to prioritize the patient's goals and make sure that you know we are helping to serve as that um, source of navigation to get the patient where they need to end up. Um, but there's the science behind it too, right? Like you can't just stop medicines and you can't just um, replace medicines willy nilly. Like you have to. Um, have a pharmacist expertise on board to identify, well, he really doesn't like the way that medicine A makes him feel, but I think I can use medicine B and that we can eliminate all of those side effects and take them down to just once a day dosing instead of three times a day dosing, right? Absolutely. So, and you know, we've been navigating that here as we kind of get built into uh, an independent practice built in Epic within our, our health system you know, one of the things that they were pushing us to do was just, well, there's already a, a medication reconciliation process that's built in there. And 
we insisted that what we do is different. It's mm -hmm. far more comprehensive. And the existing MedRec process did not allow us to capture all of exactly what you're describing effectively, because so much of it is not just the chemical interactions between meds. It's all of those other like psychosocial and environmental factors, the real, the patient's priorities and goals, what's most important to them and how do we balance side effects? How do we balance cost? How do we balance just the say medication taking burden with all these other priorities? And I know it takes her a ton more time to do a rec for us than it does for say the normal inpatient setting or even in the ambulatory setting supporting like a primary care practice. But uh, we've just seen such a huge impact from it, helping us help the patient get to their goals. Yeah, and I think also that, um, you know, in, in addition to being an, an asset for the CP team, the, the pharmacist that serves in this role ends up being a huge asset for the physician teams as well, because the physician teams are having poorer outcomes in their patients because of all these other issues, right? And so we really do have the capability to serve as that bridge between the health system or the physician team and the CP team in order to ultimately meet all three of our goals, which is, you know, good outcomes for the patient. Absolutely. And, and you, know, you kind of hinted at it or, or touched on it earlier in the call, but trauma and associated trauma with a lot of parts of what's going on in their lives is, I would say, not omnipresent, but pretty darn close. But mm -hmm. what we've also really discovered is that patients who are referred to mobile integrated health programs largely have had a poor experience of care and of the healthcare system in general. Uh, over a period of time. So rebuilding those relationships, um, really fostering and encouraging stronger primary care relationships and, and showing them that those of us on the, the healthcare side of this, this equation really are there with their best interests and to help them accomplish their goals in mind. And I don't think a lot of patients, especially patients who are struggling with a lot of chronic disease management and some other challenges, uh, always feel that way. I think a lot of times they feel like they've just become a number or a cog in the system and they're getting kicked around a lot and they're being talked down to quite a bit. Um, a lot of times that we've been able to document, say, clinician relationship problems as being underlying to all the other stuff that's happening. They just don't have a great relationship with uh, a lot of the folks that they've interacted with recently. And it's preventing them from buying in, from wanting to adhere to a treatment plan because they don't really believe that it's in, you know, for them. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that um, we address a lot of those issues successfully, you know, uh, by revisiting them frequently. Um, so I think it takes a lot of really intense conversations and, and bonding experiences with that patient um, to talk about those issues and to get them out in the open. And you do, you have to build a lot of trust with that patient. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I almost never start my medication reconciliation process with um, what meds do I need to add, right? Because they're used to that. They're used to walking into an office or visiting the urgent care and somebody, you know, writes a prescription and here you go, get out of here, go see somebody else in, in three days from now. And it's been a poor experience. They do, they do not feel... Um, like their care is a priority. And um, so, you know, you never really have patients that wanna take more medicine 
right? Um, so I think that's my bigger focus is how do I build enough trust with this patient and what can I change, right? Not adding medicines, but what can we change or what can we um, minimize harm with? You know, it's funny. Uh, I got a book given to me many, many years ago. Uh, I believe it was written in either the late 40s or the early 50s. And it was just a small little pocketbook. And it was advice from old physicians to young. And, and essentially every page in this little book was a couple of sentences from an, an older practicing physician, most of them were probably in their 70s or 80s is my guess, um, to new physicians entering the practice, entering the field. And it was just neat to read through because they were just little vignettes, little pieces of advice. And the one that still sticks out in my mind today, um, and not saying that following this exactly is the right answer, but it was when you have a patient present with multiple medications and multiple medical problems, stop all the meds and figure out which problems go away. Right. Yeah, no, we, we had a patient not too long ago that was on 26 different medications. Um, she had seen in the last year, you know, eight or nine different physicians prescribing these. And, you know, it took probably, uh, you know, 30 to 45 minutes longer than a traditional patient to really navigate through all these issues. But we were able to eliminate like 12 different medications right off the bat because they were just add-ons to treat the side effects of her original drugs. And I remember a 911 call, must be almost 20 years ago now, where we went to a long-term care facility that was providing almost like a skilled level of, of long-term nursing care. This patient needed a lot of help and you know, had a bunch of physicians involved in her care. And she essentially had no blood pressure. She was, she was hypotensive to the, wow, this is bad degree. And as we started digging through everything, we realized that she was essentially on every class of antihypertensive that you can think of for a variety of different reasons. Right. But it essentially shut down every mechanism by which the body could have made pressure. And the last drug was, you know, just started like within 24 hours of the 911 call. So, I mean, this patient had no blood pressure whatsoever and no way to actually make it. Yeah, it is scary in a sense. And, and, you know, sometimes it's that balance, right? So a lot of times you need multiple different blood pressure medications from different classes, but a lot of times it ends up being overkill, right? And a lot of times there is an, an adherence issue or some other issue at play where um, the blood pressure was elevated and they added on that different medication or that one last medication that did the patient in. Um, yep. But it's, it's definitely a, a huge burden. And, and I would say a large majority of our patients do end up having some sort of medication issue. We actually average on our team over the last four years, we bounce around between like 2.5 to three medication issues per patient. Um, and those are the ones that we successfully resolve, right? So there are some that we, we, you know, we can't, um, you know, successfully partner with a physician or, or something like that to get those changed. But per patient, we average two and a half to three medication issues that we resolve. Sure. Like I did a, a sample cohort and we're, we're probably going to put this into a paper because I think it's worthwhile. But we, we looked at a sample cohort of patients that were seen by our MIH pharmacist. And our pharmacist does do a rec at a minimum based on the CP inventory, mm -hmm. um, not just what's in the, uh, the EHR for 100% of our patients. Every patient gets a, at least a full reconciliation. 
Um, so we pulled a cohort of them from some patients that we saw last year and 87% showed a discrepancy between what was found in the home and their record in Epic. Yeah. 84% had a clinically significant category C, D, or X interaction uh, identified. And 60% had multiple interactions combined with either non-adherence, cost concerns, uh, and or med literacy barriers. Yeah, 20%, one in five patients had a category X interaction that was identified. Yeah, it's it's not surprising at all, and it it really is um, no wonder that you know medical errors and and medication errors are what the number three or number four cause of death nationwide, depending on the year that you look at it. Yep. Um, and and you know I think that you guys are ahead of the game. I feel like my team is, you know, the innovation that my chief showed years ago was ahead of the game. We now know and research now overwhelmingly shows that, you know, medication reconciliation is most effective and has fewer errors when completed by a pharmacist, right? Versus any other member of the healthcare team. Um, and it's because we have that background, right? We're the medication expert. Um, right. And so the other part is reduce liability to CP teams, right? And the, the team's medical director by incorporating the pharmacist to do the job um, based on the expert training that they receive, right? Sure. And I, and I think the, the liability question is such a such an odd one. It, it really feels hypothetical at this point. And, and I don't disagree with the reality that we have to do better. Mm -hmm. We have to do better. I mean, I was looking at one uh, HRQ study from probably about seven or eight years ago. And they're essentially saying that if a patient is on 12 or more medications discharged to a sniff, they had like a 100% probability of an error. Right. Like we, we know that, and, and these, we as, as the medical professionals and the healthcare professionals have to own these. We have to own the fact that we are harming patients with medication errors and not just errors in the sense that you know, we gave someone the wrong drug, but that they're powerful, they're complex, and that we have to take the time to understand the complexity. And honestly, pharmacists are the answer. You are the subject matter experts at this in ways that, you know, thankfully, our medical directors are emergency physicians. And I think the emergency docs have been very open about the, you know, the fact that we're emergency physicians. Like, sure, I can do, I can look it up and I can figure out, you know, the one-to-one -one interactions and I can use some of the decision support tools, but that doesn't make them a pharmacist. Right. You know, they, they, the partnership needs to be there to collaborate. Cool. Tell me what I'm looking at here so that we can help make a better clinical decision based on, you know, some really good science and some really yeah. good now, I think that you're right. And it's it's interesting that you bring up the, the EMS medical directors. EMS physicians are probably some of the most innovative in, in realizing that a multidisciplinary team in the ER is critical, right? Um, you know, some of the chronic disease management physicians are used to doing it on their own for, for years and years and years. ER physicians are used to having their team there, right, for a, a code or for whatever the situation is. Um, and so I think that you're right. I think that they are some of the first physicians that are, are ready to say, you know, why spend all this time and energy around learning how to do this when we have someone that we can bring in that it's their expertise, um, so great point there. I, I agree with you. Well, it's been huge. So, you know, you, your program got started there back 
kind of before really pharmacists had hit anybody's radar. And I know over the last couple of years, there's a few papers. There was one, I think the first real big one that came out was in 2017 that might've been coming out of UCLA and specific to a heart failure community paramedicine initiative. Uh, and there was that recent paper, I believe, that just came out out of, was it Maryland? Um, also demonstrating the value and impact of pharmacists. Have you had a chance to read either of those or are aware of any other literature out there that teams should refer to when they're looking to fund some of this stuff? So both of the sources that you mentioned are, are fantastic. Um, we, my team actually published this year, a, a couple months ago in August in GEMS, we did, you know, a comprehensive cost well. benefit analysis. Um, and it, you know, our big thing was, okay, so, you know, more and more teams are starting to realize that there's incredible value of bringing a pharmacist on, right? That's what we've been talking about for the last few minutes here. And, uh, and that pharmacists do have the expertise and that the, the, the value of having that pharmacist and the return on investment, and we can still talk about that more if you want, uh, you know, what the difference in outcomes is once we add a pharmacist. But, um, you know, our big thing with, with publishing was, okay, so we know that there's benefit, but pharmacists are expensive, right? And how do you justify the costs? Or, or really what does the cost benefit profile look like? And so that was where we focused our literature was, you know, what is the cost benefit analysis of incorporating a pharmacist and is it really affordable? So what's the bottom line up front? So the bottom line is that even if you paid for a full-time pharmacist for your team, um, that for every $1 spent uh, for total program implementation. And so, you know, for our team, that is three full-time paramedics, that is a resource coordinator, um, that's all of our equipment, our vehicles, our technology. So every single dollar that we spent, plus adding a pharmacist, um, that still for every $1 you spend, that payers save $4.02. So even paying for a full-time pharmacist that um, by leaps and bounds, the outcomes difference pays for um, the entire interprofessional team. I don't disagree with that at all. And that's very, very similar, very close to the financial analytics that, that we've done here. You know, the impact that, that the pharmacist has made on our patients, both total cost of care um, we believe there's a strong correlation between their inpatient stay burden and the pharmacist interaction. I just haven't been able to prove that yet, but we're working on it. Um, you know, all of those things I think are measurable and they're there. So the question for a lot of programs is going to be, well, how do I get a pharmacist? You know, I have the luxury of being a lar large health system. You know, pharmacists are part of a large health system, but how does the EMS agency down the street, that county-based agency or that nonprofit uh, private service that's contracted to a municipality, like how does that service or that agency that's running a small community paramedic initiative get a pharmacist involved in, as part of their team? So I, I think that, you know, the answer to that can be, can be ultimately really complicated based on the needs of the, of the program and, you know, the resources available locally, but, but also there's a really simple and straightforward answer. You don't need to start with a full-time pharmacist, right? So, you know, there are ways that you can creatively uh, start to incorporate a pharmacist uh, that have a very low cost associated with them, right? So, you know, for example, 
Um, could you do, you know, Friday morning rounds with the pharmacist and pick like your top three or five most complicated patients for the week and set up like a standing rounds meeting with, uh, with the pharmacist, right? So now you're talking a significantly reduced cost, um, but you're still getting an immense amount of benefit from partnership with that pharmacist, even though it's not full time. Um, and even though it could only be, you know, a, a small number of patients, it's a way to at least start that process, uh, explore the concept of partnership, right, and, and start to possibly see some difference in outcomes or do a pilot project to justify the cost of incorporating the pharmacist more full time. So I think that's the start right there is that um, you know, don't feel overwhelmed by the fact that we can't afford a full-time pharmacist. Well, most programs aren't going to be able to, right? But you can start small. So I say, I would say that's where we can start. Um, I do, of course, I do offer consulting services. Um, I, I have my own company established to do that. Um, but just for teams that are struggling, you know, even if you're not ready to incorporate a pharmacist yet, don't hesitate to reach out to me on LinkedIn and I can help you, you know, explore areas where the pharmacist might be most beneficial or, you know, just help you brainstorm of different ways that you can do that. So I'm available as a, as a personal resource for anybody that is looking to initiate that. Um, and then the other thing I would say is explore the partnerships in your community, right? So, you know, my EMS chief was really quite wise in the sense that he realized, okay, so I can't get a full-time pharmacist. I want a full-time pharmacist, but I can't get one. So, you know, maybe Dr. Reinhardt's can come with us, you know, a couple days a week and we'll just maximize the time that we have with her, right? Um, and so there might be partnerships in your community where you can um, explore partnership with a pharmacist. Um, for teams that are considering that, I would caution just a little bit that there is an immense difference in the level and complicated um, conditions of the patients in most CP programs versus like a retail setting, for example. Sure. Um, a clinical pharmacy specialist is, is definitely, um, I think the right partner. And yes. yeah. we, we've had a lot of conversations about it. And one of the things we also have access to here is, um, you know, like your role where you're, you're core faculty for the residency there, you know, we have several schools of pharmacy in the area, one of which is academically partnered with our institution. So we've had the opportunity to not only have uh, some of the PGY-1 residents, generally on the inpatient residency side, not we haven't gotten any of the ambulatory residents yet, um, do some time or spend some time with us and with our pharmacist. Uh, she's, she's core faculty for the, uh, the residency. And we've also had the opportunity to have some pharmacy students spend some time with us. And in, in all of this, actually just had a conversation about two weeks ago about possibly building out a formal elective rotation, either as part of the PGY-1 year, um, or we do have, I believe, a PGY-2 ambulatory specialty. I think it's oncology, but that may not be a bad place to have somebody do a few weeks with, with our program. So I, I think the academic partnerships are an opportunity for, for some programs if you're in an area where those exist. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And I, 
you know, education is a huge passion of mine being faculty. I think that um, I think that incorporating residency experiences, not just for pharmacists, right? So I know that right now that's what we're talking about, but for physicians as well, or for social workers, or you know, for a, a variety of other healthcare professionals. Funny, we've do... done we've done both. You know, I came from the uh, the Connect program, uh, and we had uh, graduate social work students doing rotations with us. We actually had the chair of the School of Social Work uh, take a six month sabbatical to work with us, which was phenomenal. Amazing. Um, but uh, one of the the real exciting things here is. We have one of our pre-hospital physician fellowships um, here attached to, to the institution, and it's a subspecialty board, so they have to be you know, residency trained and board eligible in emergency medicine, and then they do a, a minimum of a one-year fellowship in pre-hospital care medicine. And we decided from the beginning that that fellow position would do a formal rotation with uh, the MIH program. So we we're on our second year of fellows. The first year we, we had them come out and they just did a solid month with us. Um, and that worked out pretty well this year. We've been doing a little bit of a flex thing with our fellow, but it's been a really good experience. I think eye-opening because there's someone who's just completed a traditional emergency medicine residency. Uh, and this year's fellow actually has a pretty extensive pre-hospital background and it's still different. It's different from, from what they've done and seen in the past. And I think it's been enlightening to both, uh, their understanding of what it is we do and of some of the things that they do. You know, I know our medical director has told us, you know, I really think about a lot of our patients that present in the emergency department now differently now that we've started thinking about social determinant drivers and how a lot of the things that we see as just simple poor choices are actually not such a transactional relationship that they're really rooted in a lot of bigger picture issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you talked about the change in perspective. And, and I also feel that, you know, the physicians that have come and done, done rotations and our, with our team have been um, bigger advocates for interprofessional care in, in their next role. So I, I think that, you know, when they, they have some time to spend with mobile integrated health community paramedicine and really their perspective does start to change about, you know, how they should approach this patient and what the true barriers are for each patient and, and, um, and realize that it's more complex that than any of us usually realize to, to start with that the physicians end up um, making better use of their clinical team as well. And I feel like I've seen that with the physicians who have done rotations with us. Sure. And, and that's really it. I mean, the name of this podcast is integrated and mm -hmm. the operative word in mobile integrated health is integrated. It's all about these, these polydisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so great points there. And I think that more and more uh, mobile integrated health community paramedicine programs will start to incorporate um, those higher, you know, higher level or higher education rotations um, because there is huge benefit to it. No, there has to be. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on today and again, all the great conversations we've had over the last few weeks or few months. Folks, yeah, if you no, don't have a pharmacist on your team, I'm telling you, it's the thing that you need to do and explore. That relationship has probably paid more dividends and made a greater impact on our patients than almost anything else we've done. 
Well, I love hearing that. I, I love talking to other um, CP teams who have had the pleasure of, you know, being exposed to the beauty of this interprofessional relationship. And so I'm really appreciative. And, and for anybody that is listening, if you're feeling stuck or you're feeling like you want to talk about it, you know, um, this is my passion is to figure out how to allow every EMS agency, every paramedicine program, every mobile integrated health program access to a pharmacist. That's what I feel is my, my calling um, professionally. And so if I can be a resource for you, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I know there are a lot of other teams and programs out there that are struggling with some of these questions. Cool. It sounds great. How do we pay for it? Uh, how do we, how do we build a, a um, professional relationship and employment relationship? How does supervision work? There's lots of questions out there. Um, and there are some folks like Dr. Reinhardt's that are trying to help other people understand how to solve those. So. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much again and keep at it because I think the, the work will continue and the patients need it. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you today. And that's integrated the community paramedicine podcast.